Welcome to uh, the 19th episode of Regulate Tech with me, Nicholas Berlumblad, and with me, Richard Allen. So, Richard, today we have a, a, a one of those episodes that sort of ties into something that's that's really timely. There's there's recently been a bill uh, published or presented in the UK. Tell us a little bit about what bill that is and and why it's interesting. So, the bill is now called the Online Safety Bill, or rather, the Draft Online Safety Bill, and it's evolved out of something that was previously called the Online Harms. Uh, bill. So there's been some evolution there and an interesting shift to the positive promoting safety rather than negative prevention of harm. But basically, it's the same thing. Um, and, and this has been sort of going through a classic British process really now for a couple of years where the government produces some ideas, asks for a response to those ideas, and has now got to the stage where it's saying, look, this is what the legislation will look like. And we're going to go out now and have a, what they call pre-legislative scrutiny, which is where you have a, a period where you take evidence from experts and actually sort of look at the legislation before it formally goes through a parliamentary process where the two houses of the UK Parliament will be able to propose amendments to it. So it is this draft bill, a glorious, I think, 146 pages of uh, bill text and then some accompanying documents. There's some explanatory notes. And then the, uh, a thing that I hope we're going to get into today, uh, an impact assessment that tries to kind of quantify what it's going to cost to implement all of this stuff. Yes. And uh, I, I distinctly remember, I mean, if we talk about the basic model here, because it's always interesting to dig into what a basic model behind a piece of legislation is. And the, the, the way I remember this, and I had a couple of conversations with people in the then UK government about it several years ago, frankly, the, the way I remember this was that they early on latched onto this notion of a duty of care. And that figures very largely in the, in the legislation. Can you, can you explore that a bit for those of us who aren't, aren't uh, so read into Anglo-Saxon law? Yes. Yeah, so, so, so um, actually, the duty of care notion, in a sense, comes from other areas. And the area that people cite is around safety at work. So, so you have a duty to keep your workplace safe. And, and it's really hard. You can't kind of define in law what that means. If it's a carpentry workshop, it'll be different from if it's a shop, from if it's a uh, you know building site. So, so within that, they sort of say they've defined this thing of a general duty of care, which you can test and say, you know, did you take reasonable measures specific to whatever your workplace is in order to keep it safe? And they're, they're trying to roll that concept over to the internet to say, look, if you're offering an online service, have you taken reasonable measures? And and critically, this the reason they're sort of doing this is they want to get beyond the idea that the regulation is just about making internet services deal with illegal content. So illegal content, you know, that, that in British law says certain things are illegal: uh, promotion of terrorism, child abuse material, you know, just explicitly illegal. So. You know, for those kinds of content, you you kind of have a regime now which says like they are illegal, and duty of care means, you know, essentially that you should uh, um, implement reasonable systems in order to deal with that illegal content. But they want to go further and deal with content that is harmful and yet not illegal, and there is where, is where the duty of care concept really kind of helps them because it's it says look, you you should be able to define whether something is harmful. And then you should be able to demonstrate that you've taken reasonable steps to deal with it, not just about sort of box ticking on illegal content. 
but but what it is is also sort of a this is setting up a conversation in court, right? That's sort of very much the Anglo-Saxon model. It's it's not sort of the idea here is not that you read the law, and then you do everything that's in the law, yeah. and then and then you sort of should be there. It's it's sort of a all of this is nebulous until the point where you have an actual case, a sort of concrete singular case. And then you discuss in court what applies to that. So, so it's it's a bit different from, say, the Digital Services Act in the European Union, in that it doesn't it doesn't try to create a a, a prima facie predictable model for how to behave. It creates a set of balancing requirements that will then play out in court. Is that, is that a fair characterization? So it, in court, but also there's another prior stage. Which so so in in this sort of glorious um, uh, document, which is huge, but it essentially sort of sets the criteria under which the regulator will operate, um, and and sort of says regulator, you must, uh, or rather companies, you must balance up all these different things. And some of those are quite interesting tensions, like you must be really, really tough on harmful content, anything that might possibly cause physical or psychological harm. But at the same time, you must be champions for freedom of expression. You must, you know, scan for... Yeah, I want to get back to that. I read that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you've got to respect privacy. And so it sort of creates all of these sort of lovely tensions in there. Um, uh, But what it does say is, in many, many instances, it says, look, the regulator, Ofcom, and we can talk about them because I think it's important to understand who they are, but the regulator will prepare a whole bunch of codes of practice and the codes of practice will flesh out in much more detail how this works. So by the time we actually you know, implement the whole thing, we'll have gone up from 140-odd pages to 500, 600 pages of, of guidance, primary law, and then these secondary pieces of guidance. And then after all of that, yes, <laughs> um, if, if somebody challenges something and says a company is not doing it correctly, and the company says, well, I'm, you know, conforming with the guidance, that will have to get tested in court as to whether or not they did conform to both the law and the guidance. And whether or not the guidance is consistent with the primary law could also be tested in court. If somebody says, look, Ofcom, you know, you're not, uh, your guidance is not implementing the law as it should be implemented, then somebody can challenge that as well. So all of this can can get challenged. And, and we should expect that to happen. Uh, and that there will be say a phase where by 2023 is when they expect this law to come in, we'll have the primary law. Pretty soon afterwards, we'll have all these guidance notes and codes of conduct and directions and things because they'll be drafting those now in parallel. And then we'll have a period of two, three, four years where lots of pieces of this will get tested in court and we'll actually find out what it means. So talk about Ofcom. Ofcom was yeah. not set up to do this, right? This is not the first time Ofcom. I, the number of times I, I visited them a couple of times. I've, I've, I've always been very impressed, by the way. They, they yeah. seem to be very data-driven, and they seem to be a really competent set of regulators. So I think that's that's interesting. But they were not set up to do this, were they? No, and, and I'm ancient enough that I was um, in Parliament when when Ofcom was set up and actually sat on the scrutiny committee for the the establishment of that, the Communications Act, which I think was 2003, when Ofcom was created. And it was created as a merged regulator, which was novel then, I think has become more common now, but actually still quite a few countries have separate regulators. But essentially, it brought together the post office regulator, 
the broadcasting regulator and the telecommunications regulator into one and said, let's sort of put that all together. And here's what's interesting is that at the time, I remember we kept asking and the government were really, really clear, this is under the Blair government at the time, that the internet was out of scope. So this was a regulator to regulate the wires and the infrastructure, but not the content, uh, other than content that was sort of being uh, put out there by broadcasters in their own sort of special license regime. Fast forward now to 2021, in this bill, there's a few places where it kind of goes, and this bill absolutely does not apply to SMS or MMS, uh, to to, uh, multimedia messages. It doesn't apply to telecom services. It doesn't apply to telecoms infrastructure. And it doesn't apply uh, to what they call um, news media providers. So it's kind of, you know, complementary. If in 2003, we were saying, Ofcom regulator, you've got everything except the internet, the new bill says we're going to add the internet, but we, we also want to make sure we're not kind of creeping over into these other things that have other regimes. Just to understand the scale of Ofcom, they've got around 900 staff and they have an operating budget of around £120 million a year. And they, they, There's other money comes in and out because they operate spectrum auctions and licensing and all sorts of other stuff. But broadly speaking, think of them as spending you know, £120 million a year to kind of regulate all these other things. And in the regulatory impact assessment, it tells us that the government expects fees of just over forty million a year from the internet services. So by bringing uh, internet services in, Ofcom might grow by as much as a third, and might have who knows, like two or three hundred people potentially working on internet services. So you just understand the kind of scale of change that's being proposed here. Um, again, echoing what you said, they have a really good international reputation. Um, as a good regulator, evidence-based regulator. I personally have a lot of confidence. And when the government was sort of talking about setting this thing up, one of the decisions they consulted on was, do they create a separate regulator? Do they put internet in with the privacy regulator? Do they put it in with Ofcom? Personally, I think Ofcom is the right place to put it. It's that they've got the right skills and they've got uh, a complementary framework. They've, They've actually got the resources to do it. Um, so that converged regulator, I think, is the right model if you're going to go down this path. But we should just really sort of pause for a second to say, look, wow, what a step change from, you know, internet services. It's not not that they're not covered by the law. They're covered by lots of different laws, but they don't have a dedicated regulator like telecommunications or postal services or broadcasters. They are now going to get a dedicated regulator pretty much at the same scale as those other sectors. And they're going to have to pay for it, by the way, because the Ofcom model is that the you know the regulated entities have to pay for it. So there's no government money paying for that regulation. You pay to be regulated. Um, massive step change from where we were to where we're going to be, assuming that the law goes through. So 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 let's let's explore that a bit and and dig into it because it it seems to me that what you're saying is that the area the area where anyone could argue even though I think that was kind of a preposterous claim before as well that the internet is unregulated is now over the internet is now a regulated industry like broadcasting like telecommunications and and that as you say is not just a step change it's sort of a it's a phase shift, really, at the end of an era where where we had the sort of freedom of cyberspace from 1996, and now it's a regulated industry. Do, is that fair? Do you think that's a fair? Uh, so with, within that, we should be we should be really clear that the law law defines two areas that will be regulated. One is search, and the other is what they call user to user services, 
where people may encounter content. I love that word, encounter. I mean, I don't know how well <laughs> it's, a, it's sort of used. Yeah, it's you're like, startled you know. by it. I say, oh, yeah. it's content. Help, help. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was wandering through Facebook and all of a sudden I encountered content. a photograph. Yes. yes. So it's, a, and again, it's something that we could, we could joke in, but they, they're obviously like trying to find the right words. Again, I should be really clear. The people who write the legislation, the people who've worked on this are, are good people and I've engaged them over the years and they're really trying to, sort of take a political intent and, and find some words that work for it. Um, but there's hard. Notion it, is, of, it is hard. Yeah. I mean, I reacted too with the, the user-to-user services. I mean, that's that's yeah. a fairly good description of the internet. It's user-to-user. At the yeah. very end points, that's it. So so it's it's it, in the ambition to find the right level of abstraction, people rather err on the side of going a little bit too high into generalization rather than remain a little bit further down towards the concrete, it seems. Yeah. So, so, but in in sort of practical terms, most of the services that we use on a daily basis, uh, social media services, messaging services, search services, all of those, as I understand it, are going to be in scope. What they've tried to keep out of scope is good old-fashioned email. So email is not in scope. The the infrastructure services, um, like cloud services that are provided to others, they're kind of out business of scope. Business services that are internal to the business are out of scope. Business internal are in, uh, out of scope. And then really interestingly, and again, you can see where the, what they're trying to get at here, um, services, so ordinary websites where somebody has created a website and they allow people to comment on the content is not regarded as user to user, which is curious. And, and obviously they're trying to make sure that they're excluding, for example, traditional news media websites. So if news media websites allow commenting, that doesn't count as user to user, I guess, even if they're commenting at each other. So they're sort of trying to exclude exclude those services as well. What about, so they're really... So what about e-commerce sites? What about, say, you know, an Amazon or a Zalando? Do you think they're in scope or not? Uh, again, it's sort of on the edge. Where, where the... And, and others will sort of be listening to this and digging into it. We've had a, a, you know, a few days just to get to grips with it. My understanding is where um, users are posting a listing on e-commerce, so the eBay model, you're going to be coming into scope. Where it is a company that is posting all of the listings, so more of the Amazon model, but again, we can talk about Amazon Marketplace. I don't know right, right. users. Yeah, yeah. But but anyway, your classic, uh, let's, let's not go there with Amazon. Let's go and say, you know, your retailer, uh, John Lewis, a famous British retailer. They have really they good have furniture, a, I hear. Really good furniture. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, uh, so they they post their uh, uh, you know listings of the stuff that they are selling, uh, and then people might comment or review or participate there. That that doesn't count as user to user, um, uh, but it it would count as user to user. I think if the listing is from a user and the responses are from a user, as I understand it. But again, somebody listening to this may be able to correct me. And of course, there's the additional complexity of most of these retailers or marketplaces having search engines. Uh, exactly. But again, a search engine, as I understand it, that is limited to just searching your own stuff is not in scope as opposed to a search engine that indexes other people's stuff. Um, oh, that'll go. Uh, that'll this is all the be... stuff that we're going to tease out in, in the pre-legislative scrutiny. I mean, the, again, we should cr- credit that they're doing that. Yeah. That is yeah. the time to really dig into this and, and come back to one of my favorite phrases, political intent. So I think it's really important to say to the ministers, 
you know, with a list of websites, let's always be concrete and go, look, do you mean eBay in and Amazon out? Do you mean, you know, John Lewis out? Uh, do you mean uh, the search engine on any sort of e-commerce platform out? Or what about one of these dedicated shopping search engines that, you know, uh, that Google had a lot of run-ins with where people do the uh, dedicated search where they say they're searching for the best deals, uh, the person who, who tries to find the cheapest flights. Uh, and allows you to search for cheap flights on there. Is that in or out? You know, so we, I think we just need to go through all of these different um, elements and try and and uh, get some clarity from ministers as, as to what their intent is, and then we can look at the words on the bill and go, well, if this did get to be tested in court, would that intent hold up? So let's talk about some of the interesting tensions. You mentioned uh, one that I found fascinating, and that was that you have this responsibility to remove illegal content, and that's sort of uncontroversial. If it's illegal, it's illegal. Then you have the, um, the duty of care when it comes to harmful content and uh, when it comes to the safety of children. But then suddenly, as you sort of leaf through this, you end up with this duty of care to protect the right to free expression. Yeah. What, how, so this is interesting because what, what seems to be happening here is that the fundamental tensions in the information society that we've been struggling with for so long are now being placed robustly on the shoulders of these companies that are hit by the bill. You have to figure out the balance here. Uh, no one else is going to do it. So you have to figure it out with the help of the codes of conduct from Ofcom. And, and that's it. That's sort of how we're, how we're striking this balance. It's not being, it's not being struck explicitly in the legislation well it's not being struck in the primary legislation but as I, said, I think we'll see whether the guidance gets clearer and again this is where i think we need some there's a um, you know some framing around democratic content which is sort of interesting and uh, uh, again concrete examples really helpful um so uh, the platforms and the platform i used to work for took action against some really quite, uh, I would say, sort of unpleasant far-right characters who were banned from the platform. They No doubt they were political. They had a political agenda, um, but they would post stuff which the platform regarded as hate speech, and they were removed for that reason. Not criminal, necessarily, not necessarily breaking UK law, but breaking the terms of service. So you take this sort of whole mix here, and I think a really concrete question is, is it the intent of the law to uh, make it so that platforms can no longer prohibit people like that? Um, so, so far right groups and, and another very hot topic right now in the, you know, is this part of the, the so-called culture wars is trans rights. So people who say trans women are not women, that sort of commentary, which is, is quite common from certain people in a political context. If platforms want to remove that content, uh, because again, in the, in the bill, it says platforms have to, you know, pay regard to content that may cause people physical or psychological harm. And then labors the point that where it's a subgroup in society, that's particularly important. So, you know, what could be more psychologically harmful than somebody, for example, targeting trans people and, uh, and posting that content? But if they're doing that in a political context, how does the platform weigh that up? Or uh, uh, one of the other things that they've got in the there journalism. is journalistic. Journalism. Exactly. So, so how do you so, do you deal with it in a different way if it's political than it's than if it's journalism? And and I mean, I, one of the things that struck or, me. So, so let's yeah, let's wrap up. Let's let's make that both. Let's make that both. So, somebody somebody wants to post, you know, what we might regard as kind of hateful content. They create, you know, uh, the best Britain. 
uh, first and always uh, newspaper, <laughs> which you could do. You buy the domain, you set the, the website up, and you say, I am a journalist. And all the content I'm posting here on my Best Britain First and Always website is journalistic content um, covered by this, and it's political. And therefore, you've got to pay due regard, and you should not be banning me or removing me. You know that that is going to happen, and that's the kind of test case again that I think we need to tease out. Is it the intention of the government? Because there are people who, in saying the name of the culture wars, think that everyone's cracking down too much, and that politically people should be allowed to express quite you know offensive views. But <laughs> at the same time, as I say in the legislation, it says, "Hey, if the content is psychologically or physically harmful to others." You should be removing it. So we've we've got to reconcile that, and we need to understand: is that going to be left to the platforms, fleshed out in the codes of guidance, in a ministerial direction, because ministers can also give direction, or left to the courts? How how are we going to sort of clarify that? Because I'm, you know, a hundred percent confident that um, people who operate in that space will be declaring themselves to be journalists. Uh, once the legislation is forced and seeking that protection. Yes, and and it's interesting because the the legislation seems to try to preempt this, and in doing so has a curiously conservative effect because it defines and you know this is an if if you ever if you're ever into definitions and I love definitions because they're mm. so crisp. This is a document to read late at night and feel happy about because there's definitions upon definitions everywhere. And when we come to news media publishing and journalism, there's even a definition of the BBC being journalism explicitly written out yes. this is this is a news media publishing corporation that engages in journalism which i which i thought was kind of funny and and then there's a set of criteria and and it was interesting to me because it's registration which i thought was sort of conservative but there's an additional clause that then says that or you could set up a website but you need to have some editorial control etc so they're they're becoming exactly. extraordinarily granular here you're talking about you're talking about sort of trying to to really dig in and i think this is this is much to their credit trying to really dig in and see are there definitions here that are fit for purpose that will allow us to do what we want to do and this whole document can be read as a as sort of the answer to the question can the harms and the safety that we require be properly protected within a clearly defined framework? And I think this is where yeah. the, the pre-legislative scrutiny will be super interesting because that will then have to say, yes, this is a good answer to that question. You actually can, or no, this falls short of the mark. And I, I was fascinated by the, by the granularity of the definition of if you're not registered and you're not the BBC and you're not the, uh, the I think it's the Welsh public broadcast I, I yes. guess. Yeah. Yeah, yes. Uh, in that case, um, there are four yeah. or five different criteria for determining whether or not you're a journalism that, that all seemed quite, quite it is, yeah. fussy to me, right? And I mean, this reflects UK law. law so so, it, um, so uh, broadcasters, radio and television are already are required to have a license and register with Ofcom. So they're, they're sort of relatively straightforward. Uh, newspapers in the UK, and I think unlike because in Sweden, as I understand, I think there's more of a sort of process of registering and you get certain legal protections as a newspaper if you register, if I've understood the law correctly. Whereas uh, um, in the UK, they're not. You're, you're pretty much, it's a wild west of <laughs> people who say that they're news publishers. And, and more recently, they've sort of created some uh, standards, bodies and codes that you can sign up to, but they're not 
uh, compulsory. It's not mandatory. And so I think, it, as I remember reading through, the legislation says, look, if you're one, part of one of those standards bodies, you are a new Yes, it's a requirement. If you, It's a requirement that you actually, if you're not registered, you need to be applying one of the standards and the editorial control. So, so it has but, this... Or your own standard, I think it says. You need to be a, one of the official standards or you need to have your own standards. Oh, we should check a, that. But, curious, but, yeah, yeah, it's a curious yeah, yeah. sort of uh, additional qualification. So as long as you publish that you have some stuff. Anyway, this this bit, as you can tell, I think is going to be like argued over a lot. Again, what is the intention here? And then even when you've settled it, there is a question of how far you want to go with it. So, so again, to take another very concrete example right now, um, people are very worried about uh, COVID vaccination misinformation in government. And COVID vaccination misinformation, I think, would meet the definition potentially of causing physical or psychological harm to people if it's allowed to spread. Some of it is spread by mainstream news publications. And some of their articles have been, you know, fact-checked or debunked or kind of removed by platforms. Um, they're not they're not given a free pass. So again, in in the context of these sort of competing requirements, is it the government's intention to say, look, look, Fine, if, if it's in a mainstream news publication, yes, platforms, we want you to give them a free pass. Even, even if they publish, you know, COVID vaccination misinformation, not your problem. We, the British government, are quite happy. May not be happy, but we would rather you leave it up if it comes from a mainstream publication. We'd rather you take it down if it doesn't. So we're, we want you to make a difference here between or a distinction here between these two different kinds of users. Again, that's really needs to be clarified because that will be something that comes up really quite early on, where you know a platform decides to fact check and either sort of decrease circulation for or remove something from somebody who believes they meet the criteria uh, for being a news publication, and they will challenge that, and then someone's got to make that decision as to whether or not that was reasonable. So there's another aspect of of the proposal that I found uh, quite fascinating, and and sort of is it's a, a trend right now in legislative circles, and that is that the duty of care is not just qualified in the balancing of different kinds of duties of care; it's also qualified in several points in the proposal uh, by the size and capacity of the entity. I, I so when I read that. It, so the the way I, so I I had a hard time understanding exactly how that applies, or if it really does mean that the requirements for a parlor are much much lower than the requirements for a Facebook, and when it comes to to sort of the overall uh, criteria for what they need to do in order to ha- have been said to exercise the duty of care, that seems to be the the inescapable conclusion. Is that right? Yeah, I think perhaps they are. So, so again, I, um, I credit them that what, what the government didn't do is just create this sort of lower floor. Which is the DSA um, one, right? They have a much more clear cut yeah, in the yeah, European... And that's like NetSPG in Germany, where they, they basically say, we just want to catch the big guys. And and I have to say, from sort of, sort of intellectual point of view, knowing the, the sector, if your concern is about harm, it actually isn't rational to say... We just want to catch the big guys because, in many cases, the harm can be rampant in you know smaller platforms, and uh, s- smaller platforms may not have. I mean, it, it may be that they are um, unwilling because they're established precisely in order to to do something a little different. And Parler might be an example of that, where their clear brand is: we permit 
the kind of speech other people wouldn't permit, or they may be unable because they're too small and they haven't got the stuff in place. So I, I don't think legislation that just sort of excludes smaller platforms makes sense, but they, they do, they have these tests and it, it will be um, common law rather than Napoleonic in its execution. So, so again, I think the guidance will say this is what's reasonable for different platforms of different size, um, but ultimately, you know, was something proportionate? Uh, was it reasonable? Would be a matter that gets tested on the back of a complaint. So somebody would say, uh, again, they refer something very positive in there. They refer to this notion of prevalence throughout, which is one that um, and, uh, Facebook would talk a lot about as well. Which is, you know, if you really want to understand what's going on, it's not you know, in it's individual instances of bad content you need to worry about. It's how prevalent is it. Um, which means you need to understand the total scale of content. So it's very different if you go on a platform and it's you know 0.1% of the content which you encounter is bad versus if 20% of the content is bad. The numbers that make up 0.1% and 20% would be very different for different size platforms. So prevalence is a much better metric than absolute numbers. Um, so, so again, that would be the kind of thing they could test. So, so a, a, you know, a content, uh, sorry, a platform that is large and has a high prevalence of uh, bad content, the duty of care for them would mean much more robust action and intervention than the platform that has a very low prevalence uh, of whatever size. Actually, a large platform with low prevalence of particular kind of content again, the, the intervention or the expectations might be fairly low. So you're looking at both of those things. You know, a, a high prevalence platform, small or large, is going to be asked to take steps and, and required to take steps. Uh, a low prevalence platform, I think, small or large, again, would simply have a lighter burden. But, but, but it does seem to me that the sort of second order effect here is, suggests that the, the really large platforms will have... Uh, um, a higher threshold to meet, in a sense, they will have to have a higher duty. Of, their higher their duty of care will be more uh, extensive than those of a small. And and that seems to suggest that people who want to to have that more, um, you know, for lack of a better term, that more that sort of slightly more aggressive set of content or or questionable set of they will migrate to these smaller platforms, and you will see sort of a displacement effect, which is. What you've seen, for example, when it comes to terrorist content, it hasn't disappeared. It's moved into other kinds of platforms. So, so what about the displacement effect that that follows from the UK uh, safety bill? But do you, uh, what what is how is because those second order effects matter, right? This it it the ambition is to reduce the harm and ensure safety, but what it does is yeah. it reallocates the harm and the safety across the entire network, doesn't it? So, so um, again, we should be clear that there is a distinction between the, there will be a threshold for the very large platforms who will have extra responsibility. So all platforms or all user-to-user services and search engines will be required to to uh, act on illegal content, yeah. illegal under UK law. And we want to come back to that actually because it's a really interesting twist there. And uh, it uh, to prevent harm to children. And the largest platforms, and they'll define again in these secondary rules. We don't; it's not on the face of the bill what a larger platform is. They'll be required to act on harmful adult content, which is quite a big um, sort of, sort of additional category of content. Um, so, so yes, there may be. Well, I, I think the larger platforms will actually they're ninety percent of the way there already. Yeah. They'll find this relatively straightforward. I think you know one thing's interesting. Um, 
for these regulated industries. I mean, we always used to joke with the telecoms industry that uh, British Telecom had as many people in its regulatory compliance department as the old telecoms regulator had working for them. And you kind of man mark (laughs) and you're in a regulated sector. So I think we can expect the large internet companies will end up sort of man marking the Ofcom teams that deal with them. So if Ofcom hires 30 people to monitor them, they'll be having 30 people on their side sort of making sure they're complying. So they'll build all that stuff up and they'll be kind of quite a big compliance machine going on in the big platforms. But on the basis that they're 95% of the way there and 99% of the way there already. Um, the smallest platforms, I think, may still kind of hope to get go under the radar. And there'll be this really interesting exercise that they've, they've estimated that there are 24,000 services in scope there's a methodology if you if you're interested i really really encourage people to go to your favorite search engine and type in online safety bill uh, impact assessment this is, <laughs> this is my favorite document of the whole set where you sort of, they go into their methodology where they've tried to calculate what all this means actually down to things like what is the cost of cyber bullying that you will actually sort of save on the other side of the question anyway in their methodology they said twenty four thousand businesses would be uh, impacted some will be in the uk a lot will not and at some point they'll get a letter saying hey we're ofcom you're now regulated by us uh you need to pay us this amount of money every year and you need to change your terms of service you need to implement blah 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 blah, a long list of things you need to implement and um uh, i think a lot of them will just sit back and sort of wait the small businesses will sit back and wait for that letter to come and then they'll have to make a decision do they keep offering their service in the uk or do they withdraw from the UK market? Um, and again, really interesting divide. For the big companies, the UK market is so attractive, they're making enough money there that, look, the, you know, it's, the costs of compliance are worth it. For the very small business, they may be like, I'll just like say, I'll now I'm not sort of offering to UK users. And then there's a chunk of people in the middle, and this is the interesting one, who, who potentially are the challenges to the big companies where it's going to be hardest because they may not have the revenue and yet they do need to implement all of this in order to be able to grow in the UK, kind of ahead of getting the revenue. And uh, and particularly, actually, if their business model is not a revenue-based one, if they're, you know, more the services that people like, as they, you know, we we hate Facebooks and Googles for their you know, targeted advertising models, their, their revenue machines. We prefer other sort of nicer services that are not so focused on profit. Those services if they are successful and grow and if they start challenging Facebook and Googles, they will have to find the resources in order to be able to do all their compliance work. And that I find really interesting in terms of the market structure. I, th- I personally think it's less likely that sort of people will flee deliberately, that they'll sort of move deliberately to get away from the regulation. Because I, I, you know, as I say, I think the Facebooks and Googles and YouTubes and people have got most of this in place already. So if you were going to flee, you would have fled already. You'd have gone to Parler yeah, or yeah. whatever service you prefer. So I don't think it'll cause new people to flee, but I think what it will do is create this interesting dynamic when those middle tier services, which could include some of the ones that people have gone to, um, you know, with name names like Telegram is sort of well known as every time there's an issue around WhatsApp's terms of service, Telegram says, come to us. Uh, Telegram is sort of famously tries to stay out of any jurisdiction and sort of keep itself to itself. So when Telegram gets the letter from Ofcom saying, these are all the things I need you to do, it'll be really interesting. Does Telegram say, well, yeah, we'll leave we'll leave UK market to WhatsApp now. Uh, or does Telegram say, fine, we'll come in from the cold and we'll register and we'll do all of the things that 
everybody else is doing and become part of that system and give you money every year. And it's and it, so it, it solidifies the, the 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 standing then of the large platforms and weakens the position of the challengers. And if the challengers choose to remove themselves from the market, I would suggest that you could see migration out to the edges to to smaller services and even smaller filter bubbles. Is that is that a fair sort of Summary? Yes, I think I think it's, I say I think the smaller ones will just get by. And I was, I was again the impact assessment. I'm slightly obsessed with. I was looking at it, and <laughs> yes. it, it, has, it has things like um, you know the costs of changing your terms of service. Oh yes, go no, through this one is good. Yes, <laughs> this is just, uh, but it, you know, and they've looked at different sizes of business. Said, so, look, if you needed to update your terms of service, and and when we say update the terms of service, it it is. Um, you know, putting in in all sorts of clauses to show that you are respecting people's privacy, and da, da, da. there's quite a lot of sort of actionable uh, uh, pieces in there. And and they've estimated the cost for a small business is 105 pounds, and the cost for a large business is 153 pounds, um, because you'll just update your terms of service by. Uh, they estimate it would it would need um, uh, two hours of legal advice. Uh, which would be uh, costed at thirty nine pounds forty eight an hour, and one. Oh, I want to know where they the get their lawyers. Bank. I'd love to be able to pay that for a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's for the big businesses, and and uh, um, actually for the small, for the medium and large businesses, one regulatory professional at a wage of twenty pounds sixty six an hour, um, and then you'll need an hour of your chief exec or senior officials' time uh, for which will, they've charged at 47 pounds 53. Anyway, so I, I just want to be really clear. The, the impact assessment is a really good exercise. I'm really glad people have done it and, uh, and they're actually consulting on it. And if I really encourage people to feedback if they think these numbers are unrealistic, but you and I know when a large platform changes its terms of service, you have like working groups of dozens of people that will meet regularly for weeks in order to make sure that everything's lined up and done correctly. It does cost a little bit more than 153 uh, pounds. Um, so that's an issue. Actually, that cost, I think, may be realistic for the very smallest services where, again, if we're entirely candid, people cut and paste yeah, their yeah. terms of service. and privacy. When you set up a website, like this, that's where, you know, first thing you do, you've built a new service. Like, candidly a lot of people will cut and paste and you sometimes see it in people's terms it's got the wrong company name in because they've just sort of gone and found it like those guys yes they may spend you know get, get somebody who gets who gets paid 20 pounds 66 pence an hour uh, just to like literally put some words into the terms of service and off you go the bigger the company the more expensive this exercise is going to be and again those middle tier companies if you go to a you know quite well established uh, service provider now and say, look, uh, the price of you staying in the UK market is you've got to have special UK terms that could be actioned under regulation. And, and again, there's going to be a long list of things. You're now looking at a bill, I think, of thousands of pounds. You're going to hire some UK lawyers to assess your risk, but you've got a bill of thousands of pounds just to do that piece, updating your terms of service. Uh, there's another piece where you're going to have to change your reporting forms, potentially, um, and they have some lovely costings there of like you know, uh, two hours of programmer time. Um, you, you might want to find uh, some of these programmers as well because they're, they're costing the programmers at like, you know, uh, 
fractions of what I think uh, uh, we would normally pay for in our, in our uh, businesses. Um, uh, so they've got a few hundred pounds sort of cost for doing that. <laughs> you're going to have to go through all of those different costs. Um, and by the time you've done all of that, as I say, you're going to have to make a decision as to whether the UK market I- is worth it. Uh, in order well, to, well, to, you could you could you could actually shift that around. I mean, if you were really doing, um, if, if you're looking at this from the corporation's perspective, and you ask, okay, how much is it rational for me to spend to comply with this? Assuming that the value of the UK market is such that I want to retain that in my in my business model, hmm. right? Okay, so how much is it valuable? How much is it worth it to me to do this? I think the answer to that question has to start from a completely different place in the bill, and that's the fines. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because um, if you look at the fines uh, and you say there's a percentage that if I do nothing, there's like a forty percent chance that I get a fine within the range that they're right. looking at. I can reduce that to five percent. What should I spend to reduce a forty percent risk to a five percent risk if the fine is a percentage of my global revenue? That's a lot of money. I should be spending yeah. rationally on this, right? Uh, I mean, it's partly the fines, but actually, it's sort of more than that. So, again, if you look at the full set of obligations you're being invited to take part in, um, you will be required to produce information. And if you fail to produce the information as requested, which includes things like full insight into your global turnover, so a lot of your financial information, fail to do that, you can be subject to criminal sanction. You can be, your senior executives can be required by name to attend interviews. Uh, with people appointed by the regulator trying to find out information. You're right, you've got potential fines if you don't produce things. So there's a there's a whole list of potential sanctions um, that when you add them all up, uh, again, if you have a cautious lawyer uh, and and uh, but but you know you, you according to this, when you're doing the uh, assessment of um, uh, uh, what the legislation like mean for you, and they've said like there's a, they've put a cost to reading the legislation and deciding whether or not it applies to you, and they put that cost uh, uh, again at. Um, uh, 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 building in, you know how how um, how much time it would take for a small business. One hundred and seventy-seven pounds they would spend uh, reading the legislation. Up to a big business, two thousand six hundred and ninety-four pounds for the largest business. So <laughs> reading, so it takes fifteen minutes, uh, as far as I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I mean that that's costed the 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 staff time is because I mean they got down to like numbers of words per minute, two hundred words per minute. You would be reading and oh, do your regulatory Lord. professional. Your regulatory professional is being paid twenty pounds sixty six an hour. Yeah. So so uh, uh, yeah, okay. so they've got like, here it's sort of painful detail. But can you imagine? Yes, a, a piece of legislation that when it applies to you could result in your chief executives being summoned. You require to produce sensitive financial information under. <laughs> Threat of sanction, changes to your terms of service, blah blah and blah. Find ten percent of your global revenue. And find ten percent of your global revenue, and and in order to kind of read and understand what that means for you, you you're going to invest the princely sum of two thousand six hundred and ninety four pounds, uh, and you're and, not going to hire, you know, a hundred expensive lawyers to really dig and into. And at it. this point, <laughs> it's not even the lawyers, right? At this point, your CFO and your board would would fire you unless you spend millions yeah. on doing this. So the realistic assessment for at least the larger platforms, and not just the very large platforms in in DSA speak, but for for the for the yeah. sort of top 10% of the market is that this is going to cost uh, not just orders of magnitude, but orders of orders of magnitude more than what the impact assessment is is assuming here, right? Exactly. So it's going to be big numbers just to understand, you know, the, the scope of risk. And and um, yes, yeah, so that's those are the factors that people are going to have to take into account. Again, I want to be really realistic. I'm assuming here 
that yeah, there's a whole other debate about, you know, if you had an evil government or if an evil government copied this legislation. So a whole set of other arguments. We can come back to this another day because the powers are in there to do great harm if, yeah. if you had an evil government. I'm going to assume goodwill. I'm going to assume yeah. that yeah. everything that is being required is in the public interest and is a reasonable thing to require of platforms. And that's why I sort of come back just to focusing on, but, you know, the sheer bureaucratic cost of doing these good things, how's that going to impact? So I say, I think for the very smallest companies, they'll largely, as I say, carry on as now. And um, actually, I think what's going to happen is, uh, and we saw this with uh, uh, my other favorite, the privacy director of the cookie rules, third parties will develop a service, just like there's a service that says, I will make you compliant with the cookie directive for 500 pounds. Someone's going to come along and say, I'll make you compliant with the online safety bill for a thousand pounds whatever it's going to be and they'll have boilerplate terms of service up 177 pounds and 20 pence was what you said earlier that's the that's a running like that. yes yeah <laughs> no but it'll be that there'll be a whole commercial sector this is a business idea for so i mean people are cooking this up of already course, there will yeah. be uh, there will be a business of advising the very small businesses the very big businesses can't afford to do that they're going to have to do their own work and that's going to be serious and expensive and they're going to you know, just as they did with GDPR and other things, it's going to be a major uh, investment. And then it, again, it comes back to these middle-ranking, either middle-ranking businesses or people with large user bases but very little income, because they may not be. They may be a big user-to-user website, but not very focused on making money. Uh, we just say in many circumstances, people like that idea. So those people will have to look at it and go, ooh. You know, um, how does all of this work for me? My cost base is now going up. And then here's the kicker. <laughs> uh, so people worry about, yes, um, th- this kind of legislation being exported because uh, they worry that a, an evil regime would get hold of it and do bad things with it. Possible. Um, but again, platforms would have the choice not necessarily to go into those evil regimes. They could try and stay out of the market if they felt that the regulation was too heavy-handed. But almost more than that, I worry about what happens if, 20 benign regimes take this on or 50 benign regimes and so you know you're there as a platform and we talked about this when we talked about balkanization you, you know as an internet service you plug into the web off you go you get users everywhere now what happens in five years time you plug into the web and then you start getting some users and they're enjoying themselves and now you get 20 or 50 letters from different regulators around the world all perfectly benign um, all saying Ah, I've noticed that you know users in my country are encountering people on your service. Um, you now need to register. You need to pay this money. You need to customize your terms of service. You need to do all these tweaks, and I, and I multiply this cost up, which may have been, you know, ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars if I'm a small, smallish business. Multiply that up fifty times. I've got a very big number of dollars I've got to find to do all of that compliance work. And so, again, that's not a reason not to do it, but it's, it is a step change in what it means to be an internet service if, as I say, when you turn on, for perfectly good reasons, uh, for perfectly benign legislation, you now have those kind of compliance costs. And it brings us much closer to other sectors and other models, and people will say, that, yes, this is what I expect, you know, models like financial services, where, yes, if you want to offer a financial service, 
you do need to register in each country, have a compliance team and pay. I money. think it looks a lot more like pharma, actually. I think it sort of reminds me of the pharmaceutical yeah. industry and the way that that you're sort of you're creating a, a set of large companies in the center and then at the edges you have the small innovative companies and if they do something good, they're bought or they're licensed. That's sort of the in if you look again back at industry structure, I'm I'm sort of obsessing about how industry char- structure changes in response to legislation. But I think in this particular case, it's it's quite clear that you can imagine industry structure becoming much more like pharma or energy or in your case financial services then and i think i think this is this is this is and your point is is really i think really good because the duty of care will not be the same in all of those 20 countries if they're applying the anglo-saxon model and the the balances if you're applying the sort of civil law model will not be the same so you because there's no such thing as a global um, concept of free expression and of harmful content so you will necessarily because of the cultural differences have a fragmented regulatory space here now let's before we end um uh, and i think we'll certainly come back to this I, one of the notes i had as i, I read through this uh, was I, I was wondering if if um and, and you may p- put my mind at rest here if if the wikipedia is in scope uh, i i am not sure <laughs> i was looking at that because i i that's one of the questions i i, I have um is it user to user or is it is it regarded like some news media that you know the Wikipedia article people may comment on it, but the article belongs to Wikipedia is under editorial control? So I, I don't know because it's novel. Uh, it doesn't quite fit a definition. So I'd love it. I mean, again, if anyone's listening to this and has done the thinking, let us know to, because to know. we're 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 eager yeah. to make sure the Wikipedia I, survives. Exactly the same. Exactly the same question. Or maybe they could reclassify if not you know, as a, a news media, because I, again, I don't think the political intent is to capture. I don't Wikipedia. think it is. But I, I, as I read uh, user to user and the countering content, and I thought about edit wars and the way, I mean, oh, I, I feel this is one that, well, it's one for the pre-legislative scrutiny, I, I think. So exactly. Exactly. Great. Yes. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Um, uh, we're sure to come back to this. And uh, I think it would be really nice to do like a follow-up uh, when the, in a couple of weeks into the pre-legislative scrutiny and and perhaps we've by then heard from some of our Wikipedia friends. Um, uh, If you have any other ideas or thoughts or subjects that you would like for us to cover, don't hesitate. And we can find the uh, podcast at Richard's website, which is? www.regulate.tech. Great. And we hope to have you with us next week. Thank you so much. Bye.